welcome to the second annual Health and Human Rights Summit here in Tucson, Arizona. My name is Drew Heaton and I am the director for Humans for Humanity Coalition. Our mission is to awaken individuals to the health and human rights crisis of our day. We promote, preserve, and protect traditional ethics, objective scientific research, and informed medical consent. We believe in the ethical treatment of human beings and in the abolition of human exploitation. Through coordinated volunteerism, personal religious practice, and personal spiritual refinement, we educate citizens and political leaders regarding the ethical questions that influence government policy. And we financially support through fundraising those organizations which share our values. We support the values of compassion over criticism, forgiveness over condemnation, autonomy over subjection, consent over coercion, and data over dogma. If you're wondering what coordinated volunteerism is or looks like, this summit is the perfect example. United in the desire to preserve liberty for ourselves, our children, and future generations, many individuals donated their time, talents, and resources on their own initiative. No one in our organization receives compensation for their service. The monumental effort so many individuals provided to bring this event to fruition is a miracle. Thank you. Can you hear me all right? Uh, is, my, is the mic on? Yes. Okay. The date was April 18, 1942. Colonel Jimmy Doolittle and his flyers took off from a U.S. aircraft carrier and proceeded to drop bombs on Tokyo, much to the amazement and consternation of the Japanese, who had been at war with the United States for just four and a half months, but they had been at war with China for four and a half years. After they had dropped their aerial messages on the unsuspecting Japanese, they could not return to the safety of their aircraft carrier. So they were instructed to continue flying west until over China, and then they either had to crash land their planes or bail out. The coastal provinces of China were full of Japanese troops who were moving inland, and they were advancing uh, quickly. The three friendly airfields within range of the U.S. flyers had already been bombed. Most of the airmen went down in Japanese-occupied territory. Their chances of surviving and evading capture were slim to none. Days later, in a cheap restaurant in a village by a river, near the western boundary of Chekiang province, a lone American customer sat among several Chinese customers. One of the Chinese patrons brushed against the American as if by accident and whispered to him, If you're an American, follow me. The American did so unobtrusively, and the incident went unnoticed by the other Chinese patrons. The American was taken to a small covered riverboat laid up alongside the river's bank. The Chinaman pointed to it, stating, Americans, Americans, and quickly disappeared. The American knocked on the wooden vessel. Any Americans in here? Any Americans in here? At first, Colonel Doolittle and his crew thought it might be a trap, but one of, the, uh, one of them said, no Jap could imitate a Southern accent like that. 
They then opened the hatch and introduced themselves to the waiting American, who was then able not only to get Colonel Doolittle and his crew to safety in free China, but was instrumental in saving many of the other flyers from other planes that had had to go down. This young American was 23 years old at that time when he rescued Colonel Doolittle and his men. At that time, he was a missionary who had come to China in July 1940 with a passion to reach the Chinese for Jesus Christ. Who was this young American? His Chinese name was Pai Shang Wei, but his American name was John Morrison Birch. John was born on May 28, 1918, in Landauer, India, to George and Ethel Birch, who were missionaries in Allahabad, India. He was the first of seven children, and when he was just two and a half, the family returned to America because of his father's illness in the Indian climate. John spent most of the rest of his growing up years with his family on the farm that used to belong to his grandfather. This was in Macon, Georgia. Those depression years were hard, but during all those years of poverty and unceasing farm chores, John never missed school. He learned his lessons very well. He was excellent in every grade that he attended. He graduated from high school at the head of his class and then attended Mercer College in Macon, Georgia, where he again led his class, graduating with his BA degree in 1939, magna cum laude. George and Ethel made sure that all seven of their children were raised with a good secular education, but also a good religious education in Sunday school and church, and always at home. John grew up with an intense love of God, family, and country. After graduating from Mercer College, he went to uh, Bible Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. He completed two years of work in just one year. A testament to his impact on that seminary lies in the fact that later on, the seminary named one of their buildings John Birch Hall. He graduated at the head of his class in June 1940 and sailed for China as a missionary just one month later in July. Once, and this is John Birch, missionary to China, and I have uh, outlined my talk here on this poster board. You can look at it later, here uh, or later. I'm sorry I cannot stand to address you. I have MS and my right leg doesn't work, and uh, so I can't stand for any length of time. Once in China, John quickly mastered the Mandarin Chinese language in a school in Shanghai, which is over here on the coast, right at the mouth of the Yangtze River. He eventually acquired a fluency possessed by few Americans in Mandarin Chinese. After six months, he was sent to Hangzhou, which is over here, where he taught at a Chinese boys' school, and he helped some uh, other missionaries and ministers in a wide geographical area. John often stole secretly across Japanese lines to carry on his missionary work. 
No American had been seen in the areas where he went since fighting had started in that area three and a half years before. By the time Pearl Harbor came on December 7, 1941, John had so incurred the wrath of the Japanese that they uh, sent a detachment to arrest him the first day of the official war with America. He escaped and fled to Shangjiao in Kiangxi province. Shangjiao is here. This is a map of China, as you figured out. Uh, and John Birch went in many places during his missionary and uh, army work all over China, which covers thousands of miles. While he was in Shangjiao, he volunteered to accompany a Christian brother headed to his home in Shanghai. And when that task was completed, John headed back to Shangjiao. It was on this return trip in April 1942 that he had encountered the Chinese man in the small restaurant that whispered the secret message, if you're an American, follow me. Two months after he had rescued Colonel Doolittle and his men, John volunteered to join General Claire Chenault and his forces and was ordered to duty at Chu Chow Air Base, which is way down here on the coast. After just four and a half weeks, he quickly left the very day that the Japanese bombed the headquarters where he had been living, killing four people. Traveling to Chongqing, he served there as assistant chaplain to General Chenault's American volunteer group. And Chongqing is over here. On July 4, 1942, John Birch joined the American Army as a second lieutenant with the China Air Task Force. While in Chongqing, he served as Colonel Doolittle's interpreter and this experience was undoubtedly responsible for him being assigned to army intelligence. Few men have ever been better suited to the work by character and better equipped for it by training than John. His knowledge of radio stood him in good stead in all kinds of places and under the most adverse circumstances. From Chongqing, he traveled to Kunming, which is clear over here, the eastern part. For three months, he worked directly under and very close to General Chenault. In, 19, in November 1942, General Chenault wrote a commendation addressed to John, which reads as follows. And I'm reading from The Life of John Birch a biography of John Birch. I have copies of it here, if you were interested. General Chenault wrote, your recent secret mission in relation to intelligence matters, which led you extremely close to enemy territory, has been invaluable to the China Air Task Force. The successful accomplishment of this hazardous mission required fortitude, courage, and devotion to duty. The excellent manner in which you have carried out this difficult duty is highly commended. A copy of this letter will be placed in your 201 file. C.L. Chenault, 
Brigadier General AUS Commanding. Then in March 1943, John was sent to Changsha, which is over here. He worked as liaison and intelligence officer with Marshal Yo, commander of the 9th Chinese Air War Area. He was able to set up a steady flow of intelligence information back to the U.S. headquarters, and he also performed vital field work. Colonel Wilfred Smith com uh, commented on this as follows. About the time of John's arrival in Changsha, the Japanese were preparing another offensive. John gave us early warning of enemy intentions and made it possible for us to bomb supply columns as they were forming, as well as supply dumps. As soon as the offensive gained momentum, John, with a portable radio set, accompanied Chinese troops to the front line and observed the hour-to-hour -hour shifts in the enemy attack. He would say, White Pontiac, do you see... I'm sorry. White Pontiac, do you see my white panels? John would have huge strips of cloth on the ground with arrows pointing to the target. The pilot would say, Roger, boy, Roger. Then John would say, there's a howitzer over there about a quarter of a mile northeast of that pagoda. The answer would come back, Roger. Then John would say, hold it, you're shooting over. And then he would say, bring it down. That's it. You got it that time. He was doing that during the entire war. By early 1944, John was setting up radio stations along the Yangtze River, which is outlined here in blue. Reports of Japanese shipping made it back to the 14th Air Force. Colonel Smith recounted this phenomenal achievement, stating from then on, quote, the Japs never moved a ship on the Yangtze without our knowledge. In mid-1944, John was ordered to assist the Chinese forces in Anhui province. That's way up here in the northern part of China. While there, he rescued a lot of downed pilots from communist Chinese territory. General Chenault in 1945 stated that about 90% of his flyers that had been shot down behind Japanese lines had been saved by John's rescue efforts, the highest percentage in any war theater. Many of these tales, which involved lost American flyers and stranded American missionaries, are recounted in The Life of John Birch, which I have here. John's Missionary Heart. From the beginning, John had felt a personal responsibility to help the stranded missionaries and also the stranded uh, pilots, and the missionaries were from all denominations. First Lieutenant Bill Drummond, one of John's fellow officers, described him as follows, quote, absolutely fearless, completely unselfish, never thinking of his personal discomfort or danger. This expresses the amazingly unanimous appraisal of everyone who knew him in China. 
for he had long talked of extending his missionary work to West China and even to Chinese Turkestan. John's devotion to reaching the Chinese for Christ at any cost truly cost him the one love of his life. He met a devoted Christian and Red Cross nurse named Audrey while he was serving at Changsha. She returned John's love, but John chose to end the engagement, which he explained to his parents in a letter which is reproduced in the life of John Birch. The Gathering Storm. In late 1944, the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, began taking over intelligence and liaison work in China. These men from the European Front knew nothing of China and the Chinese people, and their imposition on and replacement of General Chenault's field of operations did not sit well with the general, nor with John or the other officers. By the spring of 1945, General Chenault had to transfer his entire intelligence service to the OSS. The OSS was riddled with communists and communist sympathizers from its very beginning. John recognized some of these undercurrents that were already starting to cut the ground out from under General Chiang Kai-shek and our Chinese allies. Powerful forces within our own U.S. government would ultimately hand over the huge country of China and its precious millions to the communists. This was under the leadership of Mao Zedong. The story of this betrayal is recounted in Again May God Forgive Us, which we have over here on the table. And that entire title of that book is Again May God Forgive Us, America's Betrayal of China to the Communists. John's Murder by Chinese Communists. Ten days after World War II officially ended, Captain John Birch was leading his 10 men in northern Anhui province to the Shantung Peninsula, which is off the map, way up here in the northern part. There was a known pocket of disturbance up there, and he was uh, sent up there with his troops to quell the disturbance. They were on their way to Suchow on the morning of August 24, when a break in the railroad track caused them to go on foot. And Suchow is here. A Portuguese priest who was there at the time told them of communists making trouble in the area. About noon on the following day, they met up with several hundred communist guerrillas tear tearing down telephone wires. At a village a little farther on, they encountered another group of communist soldiers. Captain Birch and Lieutenant Tung left their men on the outskirts of the village while they went into the village to meet the, the communist Chinese leader. Lieutenant Tung had warned John to turn around as his life was in danger. John replied verbatim, quote, it doesn't, much make, it doesn't make much difference what happens to me, but it is of utmost importance that my country learn now whether these people are friend or foe. 
The Chinese communists realized what a threat John Birch would be to their designs for that country because it was his oft-stated intention to remain in China after the war ended to continue his missionary work. He loved the Chinese people. The communists on the outskirts of town disarmed John's men and lined them up against a wall. At that time, two shots rang out. Bang! Bang! The disarmed men, not knowing what had happened, were then marched off by the communists. Both Lieutenant Tung and John had been wounded in the leg and bayoneted, then dragged to the side of an open pit where they were left for dead. Lieutenant Tung survived and was rescued by a kind old Chinese woman late that afternoon. He, he lost one eye and one leg, but his life was saved, and it is this from his testimony that we know John's fate of being brutally bayoneted to death. When news of what had happened reached Suchow, Colonel Ma and his troops were sent to question the locals. They returned John's body to Suchow, where Colonel Ma gave him a burial with full military honors. John's Enduring Legacy, the John Birch Society. The details surrounding John's excruciating death were hidden from John's parents and from the American people by the U.S. War Department. For you see, it was not politically expedient at the time for us to know of the stunning duplicity, brutality, and sinister plans of the Chinese communists. But in the foreword to The Life of John Birch, author Robert Welch explains how, in 1953, all alone in a committee room of the Senate office building where he was conducting some research, he discovered the threads of the story. I was reading the dry typewritten pages in an unpublished report of an almost forgotten congressional committee hearing. Suddenly, I was brought up sharp by a quotation of some words an army captain had spoken on the day of his death eight years before. Interest in the quotation soon led me to the incident with which the following narrative begins. From then on, the light of John Birch's actions gradually became greater than the light of his words, and neither would depart. With regard to both, I had to learn all I could of their source and their circumstances. This small book is the result of my search. Robert Welch. Who was Robert Welch? Born on December 1st, 1899, this child prodigy was reading at the age of two, doing algebraic equations at the age of seven, and as a teenager, he had read the entire uh, Ridpath's History of the World, all nine volumes, I think. He graduated from high school and entered North Carolina University at the age of 12. Graduating from there in 1916, he then attended the U.S. Naval Academy and Harvard Law School, but instead he decided to uh, 
be a businessman. He was a very successful businessman in Boston, Massachusetts. Robert Welch was an astute historian and patriot as well. And by 1958, at the age of 58, he had crystallized his plans to try and save America from the ever-encroaching tyranny of communism. For instance, he knew that the UN was the antithesis of what it purported to be. Its charter had been written in 1945 by a communist from the USSR and a secret communist who was uh, an employee of the US State Department, Alger Hiss. The UN was designed to be the ruling government in a one world order. How many other Americans realized that in 1953? Precious few. Mr. Welch also knew the history of Democrat-turned-Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was swept into the White House in 1952 while the American people chanted, I like Ike. Yes, my parents did that. This was after he had stolen the Republican nomination for president from the constitutionalist presumptive nominee Robert Taft at the National Convention. This so the insiders could keep control of the highest political office in the world. As Mr. Welch often said, no political party will ever save America. How true that has shown to be decade after decade. Have you heard of Operation Keelhaul? Immediately after World War II, General Eisenhower had ordered our, our U.S. troops in Western Europe to round up and ship in railroad cattle cars millions of Russians and Eastern Europeans who had fled Russia and the Eastern countries there in Europe. Back to Stalin's hell hall of tyranny, they were taken. This was at the behest of brutal dictator Joseph Stalin, and those hapless individuals were to meet their death or their, uh, the remainder of their lives in Siberia. The entire history of Eisenhower's career up to 1960 is recounted in Mr. Welch's book, The Politician, which was highly censored by the enemies of freedom. It will give you a true understanding of the conspiracy's work during the first half of the 20th century, and we have copies here, the politician. Mr. Welch resigned his job and in 1958 asked 12 of his business associates from across the United States to come to Indianapolis, Indiana to listen to him talk for two days. Topic? Undisclosed. 11 came. The first day, they heard the problem, and the second day, they heard Mr. Welch's solution. The formation of a grassroots organization to defeat communism and save freedom for America. His two-day speech was transcribed and became the Blue Book. We have copies of it here. <clears throat> With permission from John Birch's parents, Mr. Welch named it the John Birch Society to honor and immortalize the young man who personified honor and obedience to his God, and then honor and duty to his beloved America. Its motto is less government, more responsibility, and with God's help, a better world. In closing his biography of John, Mr. Welch stated, 
John Birch was just an American farm boy who might have been your son or mine. But he was the first, or very nearly the first, casualty in American uniform in a war still being waged against us nine years later, a relentless war of which there is no end in sight. As John lay dying during that last hour or two of agony, after he had been shot and bayoneted and his body tossed aside, he must have realized that the rise of Antichrist, which he had foreseen, was already upon us. There is no way in which we can reach back across the nine-year interval and let him know that his death was not in vain. But what really matters, what would have mattered most to John Birch, is whether his sacrifice does in fact help to awaken his countrymen to their danger and their duty, whether his career does help to inspire them to revere more sincerely and to protect more devotedly that hard-earned freedom as a birthright of all men for which he fought so well. Many of the key players and issues which will be discussed in this conference are also discussed in the New American articles that are available here. I have a list of uh, all of the things that I have for sale. In closing, I would like to uh, say that Robert Welch would often say that he wanted everyone to be, rather than just passengers in the boat, to be pullers at the oars. And he would close his speeches like this, quote, I invite you to join with us in our proud companionship and our epic undertaking. Thank you. <laughs>